Hello and welcome to The Mod Show, where we get to sit down with entrepreneurs and creative spirits from around the world. You can find me on Instagram at Ahmad Mia, A-M-A-D-M-I-A-A-N, or at The Ahmad Show. I hope that everyone is keeping safe in these troubled times with the coronavirus. We are over here in Islamabad, Pakistan, locked down in the pouring rain. I hope that everyone else in Dubai and everywhere else around the world is staying safe as well. So a couple of weeks ago, I got a chance to sit down with Xenia Kumar, an Indian-Australian model and PhD student at Oxford University in the United Kingdom. In this episode, Xenia talks about a wide range of topics, including social phobia and how to overcome it, the fashion and beauty industry for South Asians, colorism, facing rejection, and the power of media and advertising when it comes to representation. So without further ado, I hope that you guys enjoy the show. Zini, I want to like, start with, I mean, there was a story that you were telling me about yourself sitting in that bus um, a couple of weeks ago now or a week ago now. I want you to tell us that story again, and then we'll get into the questions that I have and, and kind of get to know who you are. Because like, that was a very important thing that I want to kind of position you with. The, Do you know the what social phobia story with the guy yeah. um, who had first. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay. It's, it's probably not going to be told exactly the same way. I can't remember exactly how I said it. But yes, I definitely can do that. Um, yeah, so basically the backstory of this story is that um, when I was growing up, I had social phobia. So it was kind of really, really strange because no one could actually tell I had this thing. So people just thought I was really shy or that I was um, obviously a very mean person because I didn't want to talk to anyone. But um, I had like this inner kind of like fear of talking with people. So I was kind of fine with females who were Asian that I knew. But when it came to males or European people or other people that I'd met, um, I just kind of like really clam up and get really shy. So it took me a couple of um it, it actually actually how I got over it was because one of my sister's friends, um, it was her best friend, and she came to the door. Hello? Yeah, I'm listening. Okay, no, I wasn't sure if it was still working yet. <laughs> so he came to the door and um he'd just been in hospital. So he was in a motorcycle accident and so he was in hospital for three weeks because he'd broken a couple of his ribs. And he came to our door and he knocked on the door. And at this point I was, um, I think I was like first or second year of uni at this time. And I opened the door and he was like, hey Zinia, how's it going? As he always does, he always chats to me. And I obviously just looked at him, looked at the floor and then went and got my sister and went back to playing video, video games on my computer. And <laughs> I didn't even say anything, you know what I mean? So, um, but later that, e- that that evening my sister told him not to to go out um because I think he wanted to go out and have some fun with his friends and that kind of thing but my sister said you've got all of these kind of like medicines in your system and so you shouldn't do it so the next day around lunchtime his mum rang and she said that when was the last time you saw him and my sister said I saw him yesterday and and his mum said to my sister that I didn't see him after he came out of the hospital, so you were the, one of the only people that saw him. And it turns out he'd actually passed away um, an, an hour earlier. And so 
what I really felt was like this person was always my friend and always wanted to be my friend. So it was like a friend that I never met. But I never had the courage to say hello or or anything to really create that kind of connection. Mm-hmm. So it became um so I felt really sad because it was a friend that I'd never met and I wondered how many more friends that I'd never met I was going to lose because of this social phobia that I had. And and that's when I kind of like really started working on trying to get over my social phobia. So I'd read all of these self-help books and I started with looking at myself in the mirror, like holding eye contact. And then from there it went to, you know, targeting old ladies to make, small talk conversation and that kind of thing um but around that same time and um, as I was still trying to like you know get through my social phobia and around the same time actually it, this young man died um I had my first conversation with a guy and I, I it was completely weird because I was obviously on a train going to the outback in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. on this train for like six hours directly and I thought it was the most normal conversation ever. So this was like my first conversation with a guy I'd ever had. And I think I was 20. I was 20 at the time, 20 turning 21. And so this guy came onto this train and obviously there was an empty seat next to me. And so he came down, he sat next to me and I just kind of kept staring at the wall, kept staring outside. (laughs) I was like, yeah, I'm not going to acknowledge this guy. And the first thing he said was, I just got out of jail (laughs) (laughs) and um when he said that it's kind of like what uh but because I hadn't had a conversation with a guy I was like no this is completely normal definitely normal um and so he started telling me about why he was in jail what what had happened in jail and how he's like just got out and and he was telling all these kind of stories and I was just like um (laughs) okay but what ended up happening was I continued having this conversation with this this man for three hours and all the other students in my class because it was like in a school trip going to um this place in the outback mm-hmm. they could kind of like they were all sitting around me and they could hear hear this conversation going on and they <laughs> so they were obviously like what the hell is this like we should probably stop this conversation but it just kept going and it just went into like his family history, where he was going, and all this other kind of thing. And um, eventually, some of my friends stepped in. They were like, no, no, guys, this is getting really weird. Like, he's asking if you're single and all sorts. So I was like, oh, okay, this is wrong. Um, yeah, and then that that's kind of like the first conversation I had. Um, yeah, yeah. That's, like the, the, the reason that I wanted you to tell, tell this is, like, this is case in point an example how you were put in a situation or you found yourself in this situation and you took the courage to to create this conversation and and to push yourself forward right in this uncomfortable in this otherwise extremely uncomfortable situation yeah you tried to better yourself and figure out from your phobia to to learn and to grow and be like you know what like okay maybe this guy started off this conversation in a very disturbing way and yeah, putting yeah, me yeah. extremely at unease, but you took that and you made something of it, which was you, you had that conversation, you grew, you, I'm assuming you made friends with the person and you continued yeah. doing that, correct? Yes. Yes, I did. So like, um, 
I, I guess whenever I've ever had a problem or something that I've kind of like recognized as a problem in my life, what I try and do is to always try and find a way to solve it, like find the solution to whatever it is. So after that, I realized, okay, there is this problem that I've got with kind of like interacting with people. So I just continued to um, meet different people all the time, every day. So I push myself every day because I travel union it was two hours to uni two hours back so that gave me the opportunity to talk to at least one random person every day so um I remember when I found this diary entry and I managed to talk to seven people in a day at uni and some of them were only like one word it was just like hello or yes and and I, I was so happy with myself and I wrote this amazing diary entry I was so proud of myself and like today when I go back and look at it, I'm just like, oh my God, I've come so far. Like, you know, I'm so glad that I pushed myself in that way to kind of always keep growing. How important, in the fear. Yeah. how important do you think it is for people to kind of have these little, little goals for themselves? Like, do you diary every day? And, and like, this is, like, see, like, I've always tried to set aside like a day or, or something to write down stuff that I want to achieve. But like hearing you say that you had this diary entry and like these little tiny goals of, I mean, not tiny in any, like, <laughs> any, any, any way, shape or form, yeah, but yeah. like little things for yourself to improve constantly. Um, Have you so, always? Well, when I was younger, I, I always kept a diary, but I wouldn't write in it every day. So I'd write in it when I'd feel like, there was like an important need to write in it. So sometimes if there was like a really important need to write on it, if I was writing about my progress to do with my like social phobia progress, um, then I would be writing in it every day. Whereas if I'd felt like I'd reached a point where I was quite comfortable with my progress and I didn't need to write in it or didn't feel like the need to write in it, maybe I'd go a week or two weeks or even a month without writing in it. So sometimes there are these really big gaps in the writing. But what I do try to do now is I keep a gratitude journal on, on my phone. There's an app and um, it reminds me and, I, and it, every time it comes up, I write in it. Even if it's like one line, I'll write something in it to just make sure I keep myself in this like positive growth mindset. And if and I don't, it... yeah, sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Continue on. Yes. Hello. Yeah, I can hear you. Has it helped yes. you? Yes, it has. So um, it keeps it keeps me in a place where I can see the progress that I've made. So sometimes I always get into like this kind of like mindset where I'm like, oh no, I haven't done anything. I haven't progressed this week. Nothing's happened. What am I going to do? And when I go back and I look at kind of like what I was grateful for over the week or the past month, I can see like the progress I've made. And I, I do a lot of goal lists as well. So I have like a list of goals. This is what I want to achieve. Um, so even if I fall short from those goals, I've obviously kind of still achieved quite a lot too. So that kind of really helps me, I guess, keep the pace of my life, I suppose, in that way. So it just keeps me going and keeps me moving forward. Yeah. How, what about how you? How do you? How do you structure? I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll okay. So one second. I have one more question. Yeah. How, <laughs> how do you structure the goals that you do put? Like, do you have something that's career, something that's personal development, that's something that's family? Like, do you have these kinds of verticals, which these goals that you're setting kind of fall into? Um, there's there's actually, no, I don't segregate my goals. It's just a list of kind of like brainstormed goals that I've written. And as I do them, I just kind of like check them off. 
as I go. Um, I've started using Microsoft to-do lists actually recently. So, um... so on on my side, I have I, like I use the Notes app on on my on my laptop and on my phone. Yeah, and I have like a bunch of lists, right? Like I have notes, I have Ayurveda, I have like I can. I'm just looking at it right now because I have you yeah, open yeah, yeah. For, for the notes. So I have like yeah. Ayurveda stuff. I have my goals. I have my gratitude journal, which I have zero things in, which is horrible. <laughs> I don't need to work in journal entries, which I can count because of the number of flights I've taken, because those are yeah. the only times where I actually journal. Yeah. And then the companies that I'm working on, um, and then the podcast, and then I have a wedding thing, like. That's how I kind of structure it, but yeah, it's just, yeah. it's still a mess. I downloaded yeah. this new app uh, about a week ago to kind of form habits that's called Tangerine. Tangerine. Oh, yeah, yeah actually, I, I saw it in an ad come up. So, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful design. Oh, and like, yeah. like, you know what I've put down as like drink two liters of bottled water every day, read one <laughs> chapter of a book. Yeah, yeah. And like, you know, like small things like this to kind of yeah, push yeah. me. Because I work from home, so like it's, it's very difficult, and like there's a bunch of things that I'm working on. So it's 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 always very difficult to feel at the end of the day like I've done stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, but like I you get into this. Yeah, I feel like it's sometimes we get into this trap of thinking we haven't done enough, and we look at our list and we think, "What have I done today? Like I should have done more." But the reality is, even if you did a tiny little bit, and even or even if you took a day out for yourself, if you needed it. It seems it's a good thing, and I think we forget that sometimes. I think you as well as a like a high achiever, you must find yourself uh, often uh, in that kind of like cycle. But it's just like it's it's crazy how like we're getting to use technology to kind of help us recenter ourselves almost. Yeah, to yeah. get us to achieve more, or to do more, or to to learn more, and and to want more for ourselves. Yeah. So but okay. that is the purpose of technology, isn't it? To kind of um simplify our lives, to automate things. So it's great if we could use it for for that too. But okay, yes, but then I have another another existential crisis of a question yeah. over here. Like fine, technology is helping us get more time to ourselves to be able to do more, think more. Uh, and and just like save more time basically in our day because everything is being automated. But then yeah. what happens is that like my parents were so busy doing that they didn't have time to think about these existential crises that we come up with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we're too busy thinking about like all kinds of scenarios. Definitely. You know, you know I've, so I've never actually thought of it in that way, but that's so true. So now we're coming back to like meditation and, and yeah. finding ways to kill the time that we have that we're yeah, saving yeah. because Deliveroo is going to be here in like 15 minutes <laughs> and now I have 45 minutes to talk to my significant other whilst eating and I don't really yeah. want to talk to them so I'm back on my phone again. Yeah. Like, how do you, like, have you ever thought of these like different like instances? Like have you ever like, like sitting at a dinner and everyone pulls out their phone? Oh, yeah. Like, I think it's really interesting that we kind of live in a world where um, we're so around people all the time and there's more people on Earth than there has ever been. And yet we're so alone at the same time. Completely. Like the, the technology kind of creates this self. 
isolation and almost like the illusion of um social communities and stuff like because you know when you go on instagram you're like oh you know i have all these friends and i have all exactly. these followers and then like you might be on a dinner table with the people that are the closest to you but have you said a word to them and and it's really interesting this kind of like dichotomy and i hope in the future there'll be a way to kind of balance this out but maybe just because all this technology is so new it's, i mean it's only come in in the last like 10 years really the way you yeah. use it too so yeah. maybe in the future they'll find a better way to use it because because we're like the the pioneers of this technology we don't really we know one extreme or the other so i mean that's what i would hope I mean, what about <laughs> yeah that's what i think i mean i agree because i really do think that we're learning as we're going and i don't know if i mean it's going to be the next generation it's going to be my nieces and nephews that really know how to live yeah, in the yeah. world with, with yeah. all this stuff because i remember dial-up internet with 56k modems yeah. and <laughs> it taking yeah. so long to freaking connect to the internet Definitely. And now you're or like, being on the phone, uh, or being on the phone with someone, and you're like your brother or sister's on the phone, and the other side like listening to your conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, Zine, coming back to yeah. you, I want to like, I want you to tell me about like about you a little bit. Like, you, you're a fascinating person. You do so many. I, different I don't know things. where to start. <laughs> so, okay, then let's. You start can guide with... me. Like, wait, you ask me a question and I'll answer it, and we can kind of maybe work that way. Because I always get okay, when, every right. time people ask me, "What do you do?" I'm like, um, "I'm human." So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, tell me what you're yeah. studying. <laughs> so I'm studying. Um, it's basically what I've done is I've started a research project which I've mm -hmm. written, um, and what I want to do is find a not a cure but a solution for skin color stigma in south asia because yeah. i feel like there's a really big problem with skin whitening and skin bleaching that no one actually realizes how big a problem this is and i think we'll go into this a bit more in detail mm -hmm. but i mean each year that in india alone there are like 10,000 women who are killed in domestic murders or are forced into committing suicide because of the severe domestic social bullying they face related to their skin color. So, you know, skin color stigma is deadly. And I don't think people know that. Most people, when they talk about it, they just think skin whitening, tanning, the beauty, and that's kind of where it ends. But it's so much deeper than that. There are all these like social, psychological, um, and medical skin damage levels to this problem that no one actually really goes into. And so what I'm studying is, um, I'm researching this problem and I want to really kind of highlight the the psychological economic disadvantage and the disempowering effects it genuinely has on women. So one happy international women's day. So this is yes, happy international like, women's day. <laughs> we're talking about this subject yeah. on I mean I mean every day but this is such an important thing that you're studying. Like it applies yeah. to Pakistan, it applies to the Middle East like yeah, China like, Exactly, China Africa. as well. It, Even, every, exactly, everywhere. Everywhere yeah, yeah. there is a pigmented people, this problem exists. Now, why, in your opinion, does it exist more in women than it does in men? In Europe? or No, in everywhere where you're studying this. Like, let's yeah. say, let's take India, for example, right? Yes. Or Pakistan. Why, why is it so much more prevalent? Like, why is there racism? And 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 the, the depression and all of these negative effects, or more, more so on women than men. Societal, 
Yeah. Why are they just? Why are they more so on women than the? Like, yeah. Why are they more so on women? Why do the men not have the same effects? And where does it? Like, how does the media kind of come into play? Giving. Like, I'm just trying to understand how to how to frame I this. Okay. Um, I think it's a really interesting question. Um, I've, and there are so many layers to this question. Like, um. So in the beginning, like, you know, when you ever, have you ever seen like an article written in New York Times or like um, Huffington Post and everything they will say is like Pakistani women love being white or Indian women love yeah, being yeah, white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's such, I mean, really, I don't know if I could say this word, but it's really just bullshit because Completely. when I go back, when I go back in, so I went back through the the, the uh, beauty records of the world. So there's a bit of like fashion history and like beauty history. And so when beauty globalized in the 1800s, it globalized out of Europe. So it was these European countries like France, England, and America who were selling these beauty products to the rest of the world. So they were exporting their products to India, China, um, Africa, everywhere, literally. And so now imagine one region in the world controls all the beauty products in the world, and therefore they also control all the advertising of the beauty products in the world. So what yeah. they were actually doing was they were selling European beauty ideals through quite quite literally the imagery they were using to to the rest of the world. And what was really interesting in the late 1800s, early 1900s, the whole market was based on skin bleaching products for European women. So when you go through all these ads, all you see is like Afghan snow, hazel snow, and all these other kind of like vintage skin whitening brand. even Estee Lauder yeah. they, one of their first lines was skin bleaching products and this was until 19, 1926 1926 1930 when this tanning ideal came into the west and when this tanning ideal came into the west they were kind of like these brands were like what are we going to do um our consumers obviously don't want to use skin bleaching products anymore mm. which are these European women so what they did was they repackaged these products and resold them to India, China, Africa, and the rest of the world as skin bleaching products for, I mean, I hate the word ethnic, but I'm just going to say it because I've got no other way to describe it right yeah. now, the non-European ethnic people. And you can see this kind of like shift, like so from 19, so, after, so during the war, there was a bit of a slowdown with the kind of advertising of skin bleaching products yeah. because there was rationing and all that. But what you see in the 1940s, is this complete shift of ads. So these ads no longer, these skin bleaching ads no longer feature European women at all. So you don't have any more blonde-haired, blue-eyed women in any of these ads. And so the ads that they were using in India, this pre-partition India, is an Indian woman wearing a sari. Yeah. With this skin bleaching ad next to it. And then you have these products designed for men. And the Next to it, they were saying, hi, do you have dark skin? Are you not able to get jobs? Uh, is no woman interested in you? And they started using these kind of, they realized that they could really get into people's minds using these really derogatory ads. And so over time, the ads became more and more derogatory. So this is from like 1930 to like the present day. And so they had all of this time to kind of really get into, into people's minds intergenerationally. So it's almost like this psychological kind of influence that they've had for so many years so and what's ended up happening is your grandmother's 
seen these ads, your mother's seen these ads, you've mm-hmm. seen these ads. So intergenerationally, the same message has been told over time. And as all the products on the shelves went from normal non-skin bleaching products to skin bleaching products because these brands realized they could make such profit, the advertising changed with that. And with as with the advertising changed, the way people viewed skin color also changed. And so what I've also found is in the 60s, um, in India, there was um, a woman, Rita Faria, who won Miss World yeah. internationally. And at the time, the newspapers called her fair, like fair skin. And what's really, really interesting is she was fair skinned for the Indian population. And when you go back now and you see her skin color and you compare what they're calling fair skinned in India now, Rita would be considered dark skin now. So the ideal of lightness has also also kind of like globalized into like this European level of lightness. So now fair skin is almost unobtainable to 90% of the population unless they are like really light skinned or um, half European or, you know, genuinely have a skin condition like the Lego. So it's really, yeah. really interesting how these kind of like thing, this ideal has evolved over time. And it's always been, and back to your point about why it affects women more than men. It, it's always been about women and women being lightened and that's because in a way especially in patriarchal societies women yeah. were seen as commodities for for men um I, I know that sounds really crude but they were seen as commodities for men so a lot of the time what would happen is if there were like 10 women to select from and and the, there was one woman of those 10 who had the lightest skin more than likely the one who had the lighter skin, regardless of what her facial features look like, would would have been the one that male would have selected. And that was because the society had created this kind of, almost like a hierarchy of light skin associated with status. And a, a lot of that also came from the colonial era, because when I went into like records from the 16th century, a painting records, what you see in different parts of India and what is now Pakistan is artworks that show people of all different skin tones. So you see kings with women and wives or concubines who are all different skin tones. And when you see the artworks in the 19th century after the colonists arrived, that artwork no longer has this skin color diversity, it's all just one tone. So it's kind of really interesting how it's changed over time as well and how these ideals have come in. Um, yeah, oh, and I found, okay, sorry, I know I'm on a tangent, but I found this article, um, it was from Bengal, it was a a soldier who was describing Indian women in Bengal in 1893, I think it was, I don't quote me on the, on the actual year, but it was the late 18th century, eight, no, late 19th century, and what he said was about women in West Bengal was, had it not been for their complexion they would have been considered attractive so that's where you get this idea that complexion skin color becomes unattractive directly rooted to this book victorian ideal yeah you know how like beauty standards today have become globally or at least in the west all about accepting whether it be is accepting of religion, accepting of body size, accepting of color. And all of these things are taking place now in the West, correct? Yes, yes. 
and slowly fizzling out in the East as well. Although I do see campaigns being done and being shot in the Middle East featuring no Middle Eastern women. Yes, I think there's a huge problem with representation, especially the Middle East, Central Asia and South Asia. There's, I mean, I did this calculation of um, like representation on catwalks. Yeah. This is for um, an article I'm writing. And, you know, the top 10 luxury brands in the world, they think it's totally fine to have one woman who's half Palestinian and half, you know, Dutch to cover all the all of all of the Middle East and not actually use a genuine Middle Eastern person or for all of South Asia to use someone who's like one eighth South Asian. And I yeah. think it's ridiculous that they think that, you know, this is some of the biggest populations in the world were not even represented. So it's getting a little bit ridiculous that people think that representation has kind of been ticked off in a box. It's been done. We've done it. But, but see, that's environmental stuff. It has not been done. You know what I mean? That, that, exactly. And that's such a huge, like, it's, it's a huge problem that we, we think that we can get rid of. Like, it's, it's not a checkbox. Yes. The point is, it's not a checkbox. Like, I talk to women yeah. and I talk to people on a, on a daily basis and they'll look at magazines like Vogue and, and, and Harper's Bazaar and con- like any Condé Nast property and they'll be like, we see these magazines, but the people Where that we I? see... Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Where am I? And so you know it's, what I think the problem like, is, like a... is that yeah, the, sorry, you continue. No, and just one last thing would be like we're yeah. we're coming back to that cycle of seeking validation where the yeah. validation is not gonna come. Yeah. And I have a few theories on why this is. Like one is who so I asked myself who holds the positions of power in fashion? And right now a lot of mm-hmm. it really is quite European like every brand in the world every major one of the major 10 luxury brands in the world that make the most money in the world you know who are part of LVMH group or caring are all run by European people all the casting all the casting directors are European or so and then what you have is all these positions of power who holds the positions of power so the magazine editors um they're all either European or African-American so what's happening is with these particular groups being in power, when they see themselves being represented, they kind of ignore the fact that other groups are not being represented. Because have you ever heard of, you know, the Pakistani representation activists? No. Have you heard of the Indian no. protesting on the street, demanding representation? Or, you know, the Middle Eastern group of women who are like screaming about where am I in vogue? No. And just because we're silent on these issues, doesn't mean we accept them and I think there needs to be a really big movement from from us to demand our own representation because until we do no one's going to change it and I completely completely agree that's where I feel it is right now do you see or do you feel like we are taking control and that we are taking this movement or this conversation because i mean there's a couple of layers here where like the advent of social media now gives everyone a voice like now everyone can be a journalist and everyone can be an activist and everyone can can and can put out their feelings and and uh, and talk out yeah i right? think social now, media it's given people a platform but the people who hold the positions of power have not necessarily been talking about it. like even when 
I'm you know when you think about like really big Indian celebrities like Priyanka Chopra mm-hmm. in the West. Yeah. I've not, never really heard her like scream about why where's all the Indian representation or anything like that, considering she has this amazing platform. Massive platform, yeah. The fact that I I feel like there's a thing in the South Asian community where we don't support each other, we don't support our talent. Like Indian Vogue, most of the time they don't even put an Indian person on the cover. Or if they do, it's just a celebrity or like, you know, a child of nepotism or something. But it's kind of like Brazilian Vogue will continuously put new talent, new models on the cover so that they can do well overseas. And if they do well overseas, then they become international. And with South Asians, you know, with our kind of idea of what we think is beauty, like this international look. I don't know if you heard of this thing in Pakistan Mm -hmm. or in India. They had this thing called international look where they specifically cast for a European face to make their brand look international but what ends up happening is you have this huge pool of South Asian models that never get work and they don't get to work in their own country or represented in their own country they are not going to be able to work anywhere else no way yeah and so the brands will see that in the west and think why do we even need to use the South Asian they don't use them so let's just use a European woman to advertise in those markets so that's what's happening so there's this there's this anecdote that I was, I mean, I was talking to someone, um, I, I don't know if it was my sister-in-law or someone else uh, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago, and we were discussing like wedding dresses and, yes. and brands in Pakistan. Yeah, yeah. And now listen to this, right? Like the women that they're representing in the fashion shoots were white women wearing dresses that were a lot more revealing, like low cut, crop tops, and so the guys that went to the wedding, uh, to the designer, they're like, you know, like you're putting all of these clothes out that we can't wear. Yeah. And they're like, no, 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 no. This is just to make sure that you guys come into the door. But 95% of the people that come and actually buy the outfits only want the modest clothing. Right? Yeah, actually, yeah, it was yeah. It was Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was probably from the third editor who was saying this. Yeah. Like, that's crazy to me. Yes, it is. It is. And I feel like it's so sad that we have this disconnect. And you know what this reminds me of? There was a Women in the World conference. um, I think this was 2017. And Lakshmi Menon, who is a model, was chatting with one of the editors. And she asked Edda, why is there not more Indian woman, women in advertising? And the editor, quite literally, so this is the person who has the ability to control the way casting choices and the way beauty is kind of like changed in the world, in, in an entire market. She said that Indian women do not translate into commerce. And so when the people who have positions of power to change things have these kind of inner biases, yeah. it's not going to change anything. And so what you end up seeing is these continuous cycles of old, representation over and over again until new talent comes in um to change that and i feel it's really sad that because the consumers actually don't want it when you chat with people people see these ads and they know that you know this is what it is like you said you know this foreign woman wearing this revealing outfit in an outfit that people of the local region is not going to buy anyway so why not just use a local model wearing an outfit that people of the region would buy surely that would increase sales right that's what you would think, but I don't know why there's this underpinning of we need to be conforming to the West. Yeah, and it's like conforming we need to, to Western ourselves. beauty. Yeah. yeah, there's almost like a 
this is something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. So it seems like there has been, there needs to be a movement that celebrates identity and our own identity as South Asians, because I feel really sad when I see these kinds of things and I chat with casting directors who say, you know, we need international look because that's what sells. That's, that's mm-hmm. what's going to make our brand high end. So does that mean we are not high end? And if we are not high end, we don't use people that look like us and we don't support our own talent. Does that mean we're not like good enough to use? And, and unless we change that, nothing's really going to change because yeah, no, it's, there's a disconnect with our current identity and not being good enough. And I don't know if this is left over from the colonial movements or is mm-hmm. it because we've never had the opportunity to express ourselves in in a way where we feel represented? Because, you know, when you think about Hollywood, there's like, what, three people yeah. like that represent us and most of them just do stereotypes anyway. So it's kind of like... Maybe we think... just all need to collectively yell about uh, how proud we are and how proud we are to be represented just exactly the way we are. Do you think this has anything to do with imposter syndrome? Um, no, I think it has to do with the way representation has been viewed over the last couple of years. So a lot of these ideas of Western beauty being epitomized has to do with the way kind of the beauty market has worked so when you look at like the 2000s and and beyond that so back to that globalization of beauty beauty has always been represented by european women up until quite recently Mm -hmm. and so that hasn't changed really till recently um and in these south asian countries in particular like in Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka, you still see European women in saris. And that's and when you ask them why are you doing this, they usually just say, because that's what sells, it makes us look international. And there is this idea that happened. Um so I was going through actually the record of American Vogue from the very first record down to quite recently. And so I was looking at how the image of India had changed over time. And yeah. so when when India pre-partition was represented in that magazine, it had its own identity. So it was giving, basically, it was inviting Vogue India into India. No, not Vogue India, sorry. It was inviting American Vogue into India to shoot kind of royalty of India in a way that was completely orchestrated by the Indians. So it was like an identity created by the Indians that was shot by American Vogue. And then what's happened over time is that as tourism has increased into India and people with less money have been able to go into India and Pakistan, mm-hmm. they've ended up going through and creating. So what what's ended up happening is you get a hundred photographers from New York who are who have a really low budget. They can't stay at the Taj Hotel because it's too expensive. So yeah. what they naturally do is they go out on the street and they photograph the poorest people on the street. Now, they photograph all these really poor people on the street and they go back to their country, so say New York, and they make a photo book called India. And they put all these images of just poverty in there. 
Yeah. And so imagine this has been happening since the 60s. So the image of South Asia over time, even though we still have these kind of palaces and wealthy people and populations in the West has just gone into such an image of poverty. And then when you look on, you know, that's so interesting. I haven't even like, I did not even think about that. And you see save the children ads. The only time you ever see an Indian in New York is a save the children ad. So this idea of India being associated with poverty in the West has really, really affected representation. And that's because we haven't actually created that image, if that makes sense, because there isn't enough people in the West who are of South Asian descent who have decided to go out of the way to create their own identity. And I think that's kind of what's happening now with people like Jamila Jamil, who is kind of like forging, forcing that identity and people like Riz Ahmed. And I, I kind of really like that because they're moving away from this kind of like poverty image that was given to us yeah. as opposed to us creating it. Do you know what I mean? So We're um, taking the power back basically. Is that, how do you tell yeah. the narrative? Yeah. So no, that's yeah, fascinating. It's, it's all about how you tell the narrative. And for so long, we have been associated with poverty. And whenever you see Indian models in ads, unfortunately, quite recently, I, I was going through a bunch of ads and I was really annoyed because, you know, Tim Walker did this incredible shoot with Indian models for uh, that was exhibited at the Victorian Albert Museum. But, uh -huh. you know, they were they weren't just Indian. I think there was people from all of South Asia, actually. And it was really sad that he kind of like caricatured all of us, you know, blue faces, colorful clothes. And even though there was about 10 or 15, I think there was 10 models, I don't know, I can't remember, about 10 models in that shoot. And the first time that so many South Asian models had been represented in a single shoot, it was caricaturized, it was orientalized. It wasn't like, it was the only reason they were used was because of the Western association of India. So, you know, the Western, the way the West thinks about India. So when you talk to a Western casting director who's never been to India, they will say, oh, color, colorful spiritual these are the kind of words that come up whereas yeah. we kind of define ourselves differently and it's the same when chanel did this bombay india collection in 2011 um what they ended up doing was so carl lagerfeld thought about doing this collection to do with india and it was really interesting that he even called it the bombay collection because at the time mumbai it was not called bombay anymore it was called mumbai and bombay was the colonial word for the city and he himself actually had never been to india so all of the images he put on that runway were all of these old images of orientalism colonialism the western view of what they thought of india and when you see that runway you see that you know light-skinned indian models with green eyes wow and i'd love to see this yeah, yeah, no, it's amazing. So when you see that, you kind of realize, as South Asians, we've never actually authentically been represented in the West. And it's now our time to like really make a stand for it. Otherwise, continuously, someone else is going to create our identity for us. So that's what I think. Yeah. So, Zinia, yeah. when did you when did you decide that this was the thesis that you wanted to study, and this was something that you wanted? to be a huge part of your life. How did you get so, I mean, you've done your freaking research. You've, you yeah. know, you know what you're talking about. Where, what was that point? Like, I'm, I'm very curious about like that, that turning point in your like, life. Yeah. yeah um, like, 
Well, it was completely unrelated to fashion or representation at the time. It was, I was just, I'd finished uni. I was gap on a gap year traveling through. I went to Thailand and I was teaching English there. So I taught English to refugee and disadvantaged children for 10 years in different countries as mm-hmm. like a volunteer thing that I did. And so I went to Thailand with the Thai government and I was teaching at one of these Thai schools. So it was a, it was a charity run school. So the children were really poor. And what they needed to do was learn how to pronounce their English words better because their teacher was Thai. So when she'd pronounce the words, she'd pronounce them with a Thai accent. And um, in one of my classes, I noticed there was a little girl in the corner. So this was like a kindergarten class. And she would always sit in the corner by herself. And then one day she came to class with pigtails in her hair. And I saw her and I thought, oh, I have to tell her that she looks adorable. So I went over to her and I said, oh, I love your pigtails. They're so beautiful. And I mean, most children would smile, right? So instead, she kind of just looked at me, just stared at me, kind of like no one had ever said that to her before. She looked really confused. And that's when she said to me, I'm not beautiful. I'm not light skinned like the celebrities on TV. And I mean, that just broke my heart. Like, how does a five year old know whether they're beautiful or not? And where do they get these ideas from? And then as I, that was in Thailand, and as I traveled through India, China, and Hong Kong, I saw more and more of these skin lightning ads everywhere. Um, and it was in India that I saw, you know, the the Russian model whose hair was dyed black wearing a sari. And that I, I thought, no, this is not right. I need to do something about this. Yeah. So when I went back home to Sydney, I was so enraged by what I saw. And I was like, I need to do something about this. I need to do something about this. So I was like, what's the best way to do something about this? So I wrote a research proposal and I sent it to the University of College of London and the University of Oxford. And both of them accepted me on to their PhD program. So I was like, okay, this is great. So I'm obviously onto something if these guys want to um, like my idea. So yeah. And how, how how deep are you into this PhD now? Um, so this is the other thing, you know, universities are really interesting places. So you would think they're just places of academics and learning, and that's what they should be about. Mm-hmm. But the reality is there is like a, a whole level of bureaucracy within them that kind of kind of makes things a little bit more colorful. So for example, a lot of universities whether you know this or not, have a biomedical department or a pharmaceutical department where they actually fund a lot of these skin bleaching products. So, you know, research and development. Yes, research and development. They won't call it skin bleaching products because the same skin bleaching products sold in Asia are marketed as anti-aging products in the West. So they will say that, oh, we're working on anti-aging products. And what will end up happening is there'll be kind of like a, they don't really want to fund any projects that will counter it. Counter it because this market, this skin bleaching and skin bleaching market makes it's set to make thirty one point two billion in twenty twenty five. Wow! So there's so much money involved through the exploitation of um, people that a lot of these kind of universities know that know that so they kind of almost put blocks in the way to stop you from kind of reaching that final 
goal of destigmatizing skin color so that skin bleaching products are not um, used in the market anymore. So what what ended up happening is I kept on coming across all these roadblocks and I was like, okay, you know what? The best way for me to do this is to turn this into a visual format piece where people who watch this can actually understand this straight away. And I don't have any restrictions on what I do. So that's where I got this idea for this documentary that I'm working on, where I can show the problem in its authentic form without it being stopped or curbed by universities or like external bodies. So right now I'm working on this documentary that looks at skin color discrimination in India and how this market has been created. Um, yeah, in and how it's disempowering women and eventually leading to murders. Like for example, the Wellcome Trust, which is one of the biggest tr medical trusts that fund a lot of research in the UK. It is funded by a pharmaceutical company who used to sell skin bleaching products in India, who was one of the first companies who sold skin bleaching products in India from 1940 to like 1990. So, you know, a lot of the heritage of these brands are based on these kinds of um, industries. I just want people to kind of understand, like, out of every single thing that we've spoken about, you're doing this <laughs> PhD, you're working on a documentary, and you're also modeling. Oh, yeah, yeah, I model too. I feel like I haven't mentioned that at all. <laughs> at all, yeah. exactly. That, this yeah, is yeah, perfect. Yeah. Because, I, like, yeah. now tell me a little bit about that world. And, I mean, we've touched upon the world, but I want yeah. to understand your space and you, your dynamic in that sphere of your life. Yeah, definitely. Um, I do want to say one thing, though. I think working in fashion and modeling has made me understand the way it really controls people and the way it re how advertising really does control um, the way pe people think and feel about things like skin color discrimination, for example, because when I wasn't working in fashion, what you find is a lot of the scientists around you have all these hypothetical ideas of how it works, but it's actually not how it actually works until you're in it. Then you're like, oh, hang on, everything's based on just one, one casting director thinks it's not based on like logic, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's been really interesting. But with modeling, I started many years ago. Um, in, in Australia, I was actually going to a university ball with a friend of mine. And uh, she took me to this makeup counter, this Bobby Brown makeup counter. And I remember sitting there and this man just like came over and he was just staring at me, staring at me, staring at me. I said to my friend, what is this? Like, this is a bit freaky. And at this time, I obviously had social phobia. So I was just not going to say anything to this guy. So I mean, he, he just kept staring at me. I didn't say anything. And then he, he walked over to like, have you ever thought about modeling? And he dropped like a card on my lap. He's like, well, you should contact these people. And then I was like, oh, oh okay. Um, well, I was really offended because I was convinced my friends had put me up for a joke because my nickname was at the time was like Chewbacca and Gollum from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so I was really I was actually really angry I was like you guys are so mean this is like the meanest joke you've ever done they're like it, we we didn't this is that we didn't this is not us we didn't do this and then um so I I looked at the name in the back and it turns out this guy was actually a casting director from uh -huh. England and um so I was like oh okay cool let's let's like go into all the agencies in Australia so I went in and 
as an Indian woman. And they all told me we only take Anglos or half Anglos. And they also told me to go work in my own country. I was born in Australia, wow. by the way. So it was really racist. And arguably it still kind of is because the lack of South Asian representation in that country is so big. It's like you can count it on your hand how many South Asian males and female models are in the country. And then so it's it's really sad. And most of them don't even work in the country. They work in London. So um, I was like, okay, you know what? Forget this. So I came to London to actually talk with the supervisors that I'd contacted about my research project. And it was in London. I got scouted again. And this time I got scouted and I was placed with IMG Worldwide. And it was uh -huh. ironic because I was signed with IMG in London and Paris and New York. And... I was still not signed in my own country in Australia. Do you know what I mean? So it was kind of like... That's crazy. Was what was the person... No, the person was from London, so he wasn't from IMG in Australia. Sorry? Oh, no, yeah, it was someone from... Oh, yeah, it was London. Yes, London. London IMG. Yeah, that's crazy. And, yeah, it was really crazy. And then my agent obviously realized I, there was this disconnect in the country. And then... Um, and actually, at that time, when I was signed at IMG in London, I became the first Indian model from Australia. And ironically, I wasn't even signed in my own country. And so my agent obviously sent a message to Sydney IMG and said, you know what, we have um, an Australian girl in signed with our network. Would you like to sign her? And they were like, yeah, sure, we'd love to. And it was ironic because I had this email from them saying we only sign Anglo's, and so I was like, um, okay. <laughs> so it was. And funny they saw I, they saw your yeah. picture before saying yes again. Um. Yeah. Well, they had to because I was already signed within their network, so it was kind of like, you know, I had to export myself out for them to see value in me to import That's me back insane. into the country. You know what I mean? So it, it was. I thought it was really really strange thing. Um. But it was great because I ended up doing a lot of work and. It was nice to finally represent someone from the community, yeah. like be someone who could represent properly. And it was nice. So I did that for a year and a half and then I took a year and a half off because I had a tumor. So I was sick for a little bit. And then I restarted modeling again this no, last, last year. And I'm now with anti-agency in London and they were they're fantastic. So they've been uh, really amazing. And like, what what are some of the what are, what are some of the learnings that you've taken out? How do you approach getting gigs? Like, do you have days or or months where, let's say, you're not getting work? Like, I don't understand the whole. Yeah. Um, describe so this think, world for me. Yeah, it's quite quite interesting, actually. So, what was really interesting was in the entire time I'd been with IMG when I'd first joined them, which was a year and a half. Mm -hmm. When I joined this anti agency in within two months, I'd made my entire wages for the year and a half within two months at this new agency. Wow. So it just shows you like how different fashion trends affect representation as well. And not representation, but rep uh, change the way clients book. So when there's a big push for representation or everyone's talking about representation, suddenly all the brown girls will get booked for yeah. jobs. Um, or when everyone's talking about black representation, which was the case in 2017, it was just black models from Africa and America on runways. 
And so it was quite interesting to see like how the dynamic changes over time. And it's all based on trends, really. And whatever the trend is, it will change to that. But um, in terms of what I've learned and what, what's been really great about it is when you first join as a model, you have to deal with so much rejection. So, you know, you're going through these castings every day and you have to learn to get comfortable with rejection. So the first time it happens and someone's like, oh, no, we don't like your look, you take it so personally, you think, oh, is there something wrong with me? <laughs> Did I do something wrong? Like, should I do it? Should I have done this? Or should I have said something else? But then what you realize over time, as time goes on, um, is that it actually had nothing to do with you. It's probably the brand or the casting director wants a particular kind of look or that type of thing. So over time, you kind of get really comfortable with rejection, which is a great thing to have because what has ended up happening, I've applied that to the other parts of my life. So mm -hmm. I'm not afraid of trying something and failing at it or trying something and succeeding at it because it's you just know that there's, there's only two ways something can go and once you you don't fear failing at something it becomes it's wonderfully liberating um there's a beautiful there's sorry to cut you off there's a beautiful thing uh, that you had written that i read and i love that you went into this yeah because you've written i got addicted to trying to re get rejected yeah, it was yeah, yeah. every time I put, I put myself out there. Once you get so used to the idea behind rejection, failure and rejection will have no, failure and rejection will have no power over you. You realize yeah. the worst thing that can happen is you get rejected and that is not that bad at all. The most powerful yeah. lesson of all I learned was that rejection is a temporary state. With persistence, you can change that rejection. You can change that rejection into acceptance because nothing in yeah. this world is absolute. I love that. Like yes, when, I, so when I read that, I was like, wow. Yeah, that's like, I mean, I'll give you an example of a situation where this happened to me. So um, there was this, I mean, this is obviously a, a fashion um, kind of anecdote, but there was this casting for Vivian Westwood that I was sent to. And mm -hmm. the first day I went to this casting, they were like, no, we don't want her. And then my agent said, oh, don't go to the casting again. <laughs> I did. I went. <laughs> I went again. <laughs> and when they saw me again, they're like, they thought I was a new person because I was wearing a different outfit. <laughs> and they're like, yes, we love you. And you know what? They, they put me in the show. So, you know, it's sometimes you, I feel like you have to bend the rules sometimes to just kind of and be persistent. And then you'll find amazing things happen. I mean, because I thought the worst thing they'll do is they'll, they'll, they'll chuck me out, but they didn't. But yeah so yeah that's incredible and they like they had zero idea that you were the same person <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's what i mean like it just depends on what a casting director is feeling on the day sometimes sometimes they don't even like notice do you know what i mean because they've got so but... many other things on in their head that you know i feel like and i read this amazing book i think it was um I'm trying to remember what it was called Maybe it was how to win friends and influence people. Yeah, I'm not sure. classic. And it talked about when to go in for meetings. So whenever, so whenever an agent would send me, like, oh, you can go to a casting from nine a.m. to five p.m., I would always ask when's their lunchtime because apparently when you go into a meeting, 
after lunchtime, people are much happier. So never go in the morning, always go after lunchtime. So I would always <laughs> think after lunchtime, people would just have the most amazing chat because they were so relaxed. So I, I've been like using all of these kind of like psychology, business psychology kind of like ideals and everything. Uh, I, I do. Your way yeah. into these meetings. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah. But it's such, like, Zia, this is such an important lesson, right, for people to be able to disassociate the rejection from yourself. Yeah. Like, it's very difficult. Like, it's, it's easily said, but it, it truly yeah. is very difficult to do because we are human at the end of the day. We take that very personally. I know sometimes Definitely. I do. Yeah, yeah. And I think... Like and, and I think this is why I had social phobia for so many years, because I was so worried of being rejected in social situations that, you know, that fear kind of paralyzed me from actually stepping out of it and working in fashion. And I think the only way I've gotten out of it is having rejection so frequently. Um, and that frequency of rejection is what's really helped me kind of really see through it. Because the first few times it happened, you know, I was like upset, crying, like, why, why not me? And all this other kinds of thing. Um, so it's been the frequency of it that's really kind of like numbed me to it. And there was a fantastic book I read recently. And it was about oh, this man in America. And he his whole aim was to get rejected every single day. And what it ended up doing was it pushed him out of his comfort zone. And when it eventually pushed him out of his comfort zone, he ended up setting his huge goals. And this goal was for to get his wife a job at Google. And by constantly getting rejected, or constant not getting rejected, by constantly pushing the boundaries. So in each situation, his aim was to get rejected. He was able to create these um these scenarios that really kind of like um ended up not without him getting rejected, but ended up being quite positive. Uh and so his wife actually ended up getting the job at Google through his perseverance alone let me get the name of the book you know while you get the name circling back to the beginning of our conversation and you putting those tiny goals of, of forcing yourself to talk to people yeah like this is kind of the same thing right like you're forcing yourself out there you're forcing yourself out of your comfort zone like there's this there's this book there's uh this guy called tim ferris and not sure if you've yeah. heard of him, really cool guy, like amazing uh, podcast, amazing books. And like, there was one point in time where he was like, I was wearing these like really ostentatious pants and colorful outfits to, to make sure that I get attention because I hated attention. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And just to get over that fear, I did the exact opposite thing to make sure that I get over that innate fear that I had. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly, that's what it is. Like, I mean, I think what what it is, is like you feel this deep inner kind of like fear of doing this thing. Like, I mean, I was, I was sweating, my heart rate went up, I was so anxious, but I was like, you know what, you have to do this. And I mean, the first time I spoke to someone random on the train, there was like three earlier attempts, like for three consecutive days where I'd kind of built up the courage to say something and I just couldn't say anything and I just kind of ended up yeah. staring at them and they thought I was really weird <laughs> but, <laughs> but but you know on that fourth day it's I finally made that jump and what it is with perseverance is nothing goes to plan you just kind of have to keep fighting through and eventually you will you'll break that barrier and you'll just smash through um oh the book it's called 
Rejection Proof, How to Beat Fear and Become Invincible. It's by um, Jia Xiang, who is, um, I believe he's American. Yeah, how to look at it. And it's fantastic. Yeah, it's well written. I love his stories in this. So, yeah. Zinia, how do you define contentment for yourself? Contentment, did you say? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it's funny because I just feel like, so I ended up doing a lot of, so when I had the social phobia thing, I ended up kind of going through like this soul searching thing as well. And um, I found, I, I kind of read every religious book you could think of. So, mm -hmm. And then there was some stuff that I read in one of the Buddhist texts that really kind of like helped me with the way I thought about different things because Buddhism is like, um, it's a way of life, it's not a religion. It's mm -hmm. more so about different principles and how you kind of apply them. And there was this thing in there called impermanence. So where you realize that everything around you is not a permanent state. And when you realize that it's not a permanent state, you kind of let go of the anger or resentment related to that. So yeah, I wouldn't be so upset if something didn't go my way or something like that. And, and, and what ended up happening was I started finding like contentment in the everyday. So like every day that I live now, I just kind of feel happy that way. You know what I mean? Like, so I just kind of feel like I can be doing nothing and I will just feel really happy um, and, and content and like kind of like whole in that way. So everything I do, I always feel like I try to do it authentically. Because if I don't, then I really feel that disconnect. So I can't be anything than I am, if that makes sense. So I can't even, like, even when people tell me you should put a face on to do this thing, I'm like, I can't because I have to be me. Otherwise, I'm going to go crazy. So, I love it. yeah, I'm not the same person. So I, I've never been the same person twice, I guess. I'm always changing every single day, which is good, a good thing for me. Um, but, yeah, I'm always trying to I guess get better and develop myself in a way that I I can always reach my kind of like authentic self yeah so I always feel content so in a way contentment to me is freedom from self-oppression if that makes sense yeah it's beautiful I yeah. think that's that's, that, that's very, being very self-aware and understand like it's, yeah. it's beautifully put Question. Actually, tell me a little bit about short horror stories. <laughs> you found them. <laughs> okay. So I, I, I don't know if anyone's actually read these, but I write these little short horror stories as people um, have to go to your website. website but, <laughs> but I've hidden go. them in plain sight. And I really um, yeah. recommend everyone looking at the beautiful artwork and the amazing <laughs> stories that Xenia writes and hides away. So please tell me a little bit about them. Um, so I, I would say I have always had really dark humor and mm -hmm. I've always kind of really enjoyed like, I don't know, I guess the dark end of the spectrum because I've always loved a good Tim Burton film. and things like that so a lot of these stories are based on kind of like real life scenarios and each one kind of has a moral to a story but the ending will always be sad it will always leave you confused it will always leave you kind of really upset 
so it's these short horror stories based on life and different kind of like scenarios like I mean I wrote one based on tinder for example and it's this guy in front of like a computer doing his thing and just swiping through these pictures it's like left right left right left right and and it's kind of like a critique on I guess the modern world as well and how ridiculous it has become (laughs) at the same time so yeah I mean I don't know how would you describe them that's kind of like how I describe them I mean uh, for me it was just reading one after the other they're concise, they're very well put together, and they really make you think. It's kind of like another yeah. form of... <laughs> have you seen this TV show on Netflix called... Uh, shit, I'm blanking. Like... Uh, Quick Google it. <laughs> fuck, wait, wait, wait. It's... Yeah, yeah. It's, like it's, close, it's close to reality, but it's not, like... And it's, it's very dark. Yeah, yeah. And I kind of like that kind of feel, because I feel like... Um, you know, like everyone has their own way of being creative. And to me, like, I've always kind of come in from that angle, but I think that's kind of what makes it interesting because it makes it quite different, I suppose. So, because I was thinking about it, because someone asked me, why do you write always dark things? And I was like, I have no idea. I've, I feel like that's just kind of like the way my creativity goes. But then, yeah, that just kind of, because everyone, everything in our world is like full of, um, have you ever noticed, like, whenever you see, like, a news article or everything, everything's always trying to come in from, like, this positive angle. Or, like, we even with fake news, a lot of it's, like, so positive and airy-flary. And you kind of forget the reality of things. And um, that the world isn't always a nice place as well. So, um, Black Mirror. Yeah, a Black Mirror. Yes. I'm going to watch this. I have heard of this, actually. Someone told me about this recently. Like, it's different stories, but they're based on, like, truths that will happen or that are very close to the future. Like, it's just, it, it's it's a mind meld of, of, yeah. of, of a TV show. Amazing. I, I think I really enjoy it. Because I like things that make you think, that kind of show you things in a different way than you've ever thought in your life. And, um, yeah, this looks great. I'm just looking it up right now. This is amazing. Anthology series. Love it. Like, because as I was... Yeah, definitely. Exactly. And like, and all of these things like play around with truths that we're living in. Like there was, there's one instance where uh, we're we're living in this society where there's rating points. Like everyone has a point, like there's a point system. And then if you don't like them, you give them negative points. If you like them, you give them positive points. And then based on their rating, they, they go on living their lives. Yeah, yeah. Which is the How case is now in China where you you can't get insurance if yes. people have rated you badly. Yes, I've seen that. That is um that's really incredible. Yeah, and they've got like this system where they're trying to get everyone onto this kind of like insurance thing where they rate everyone basically. But yeah, then I did you also read about it where if you're from a specific minority group like the Uyghurs, I think it's pronounced Uyghurs in China that you automatically get negative ratings just before just because you were that particular ethnic group and then you have to work from that and you have to work from that negative rating they've already given you to like up your your rating which is really kind of sad because what it means is they can control all people and ethnic groups and really pick and choose cherry pick who they want already so what I've read is 
it's the system kind of favors Han Chinese people and not so much ethnic minorities, which I thought was really interesting. Like, I, I it's just, it's, it's really like reading those stories. Yeah. They're short, they're very, they're truths. Like, you can, yeah. And I'm sure that they're based on truths. It's just really interesting to read it. And, to sit and think about all of these different things because like they're relatable right like you've always known one or two people that have gone through this yes so that's the other thing there's like an element of truth to each story so each story is kind of based off a scenario i've heard or seen or have someone's told me about so i've kind of like combined and obviously there's like a level of hyperbolism in, in there because you know you can't get the super sad story without adding some fiction in so um, yeah, there's like all these elements of, kind of different things in there. I'd well, I'm glad you like them. I feel like I'll have to publish them publicly now. Um, listen, I like we had that conversation. I am waiting yes, yes, for that yes, account okay. to go live. All right. Yes. Yeah, so, you know what? I should. I'm gonna have the courage, and I'm gonna do it on my own account. I think. Like, I think that, do it. that would 100%. be the best way to do my comfort zone thing. Definitely. Hundred percent. So okay, we've had a long conversation. We've yes. had some places where it's dropped off where i'm gonna to have to edit yeah, yeah, and yeah. figure this out but thankfully most of it is working um last question for you yes tell me about three experiences that have changed your life the most okay um first experience that changed my life i was in high school mm-hmm. and i i obviously grew up at a pretty disadvantaged school so i was kind of always taught told that I would never amount to anything or go to to a good school or anything like that. So I know it's really sad, but I like settled on a rubbish collector as a decent profession for myself. And then yeah. my chemistry teacher, one day she saw me she and she was like, I can see myself in you. And so she asked me to stay after that class. And she gave me the most amazing pep talk. She said to me, I, she said to me that she herself did medicine. And she dropped out of medicine because of kind of what people were always telling her about about her and herself and where she came from. And she didn't want me to go through those experiences. So she told me that I could be anything I wanted um, as long as I worked hard. But, you know, that that I'm smart and that I can do whatever I wanted. And it was amazing for me because it was the first time anyone had ever said that to me. So yeah. I really kind of... Like I couldn't say anything. I had a lump in my throat, and I just, I just looked at her teary-eyed, and I just kind of, I said, "Thank you." That's like that's all I could say. Thank you, and that kind of really pushed something inside me, and it made me go to the library, self-learn all my courses, and I ended up getting a really good mark, and I got into uni, and it was kind of I think something that may might not have happened if she hadn't had that conversation with me so I don't think I'd be sitting here talking with you if she didn't have that conversation with me so I'm really grateful for that conversation that she had with me so that was something amazing um another moment that changed my life was I I think I talked about it earlier when my sister's friend passed away so he came to the door and um he was unwell and then he passed away the next day and I really felt that I'd lost a friend I hadn't met and how many more friends I hadn't met I was going to lose before I kind of really got over this social phobia type of thing. And 
that was definitely I think a really 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 deep moment in my life um and I'd say the final thing the third one let me think um I'd say it's a positive one and I think it's actually quite now it's now um so when I had this idea for this documentary I was like no one's going to get on it no one's going to do any of these kinds of things and the first person I contacted they were like this is incredible you have to do this and then when I contacted this lady who's now my mentor she got onto it straight away and I felt like it was kind of like all the doors were just kind of opening for me and every everywhere I went everything just started opening and it, it's kind of an amazing feeling to just have like all this work that you've done for so long just kind of all come together at once and you just really feel the momentum and I think that's kind of like an amazing feeling for me right now because I did feel for a little while that not much was happening as fast as I wanted to so uh, I feel like yeah some kind of energy change life has a funny way of kind of creating this it's amazing it's all happened in the same kind of moment in time that and so it's amazing like you're saying yeah like it's it's really crazy how life has like has it has a funny way of of showing us the path when when we least expect it and then how kind of the whole universe kind of conspires to make everything that we want happen and yeah and sometimes and, it leads you down a different path and you're like, why am I going down here? This is not where I want to go. But it actually takes you around circle. And if you didn't go yeah. down that path, you wouldn't have gone to where you needed to go. Completely. Um, yeah. Amazing. Xenia? Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was such... Thank you so much for listening. If you guys have any questions or feedback, please do send them my way. You can find me on Instagram at Ahmad Mia or at The Ahmad Show. With the craziness that's going on around the world, we will be releasing episodes in a much more sporadic manner and not on the weekly schedule that we usually um, go by. So until next time, I hope you guys stay safe. Take care.